All right. Today we're going to finish up Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and next time we'll be starting the Canterbury Tales. We'll be looking at the first half of the prologue, the general prologue to the Canterbury Tales. But today, let's dive into Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Now, part three of Sir Gawain starts with the first day of the hunt. So the servants get up at sunrise. They're, they, uh, as he says, they wolfed down a meal, then made for the hunting grounds. On bugles they blew three bellowing notes. So they're going out and uh, into the hunt. And this first day on the hunt, they're hunting deer. Look at uh, line 11. 50. As the cry went up, the wild creatures quaked. The deer in the dale, quivering with dread, hurtled to the high ground, but were headed off by the ring of beaters who bawled and roared. The stags of the herd with their high-branched heads and the broad-horned bucks were allowed to pass by, for the lord of the land had laid down a law that man should not maim the male in close season." So now notice that this hunt is, it follows rules. They're hunting, but they're not going to hunt the stags uh, because, you know, that would, that would be bad for the deer population. So even though it's, it's uh, a hunt, it's not savagery. There, there are kind of rules to this. You know, the air is all arrows, and they're hunting this, or this herd of deer. And while all of this is going on, back in the castle, round line 1180, snug in his sheets lay slumbering Gawain. And who comes into his room but the lady of the castle. And Gawain's first reaction is just to pretend that he's still asleep. He says around 1190, the night felt nervous, lying back. He assumed the shape of sleep as she stole towards him with silent steps, then clasped the curtains and crept inside, then sat down softly at the side of his bed and awaited him, wakening for a good long while. Gawain lay still in his state of false sleep. So, Gawain is in a difficult position, right? Here's this woman coming into his bedroom, and she's his host. I mean, he can't very well tell her to get out. That would be impolite, and it's not his place to do it. So at first he just pretends that he's asleep, but he realizes that's not going to work, and he can't stay pretending to be asleep all day. So he wakes up and uh, talks with her. And notice he says around line um, uh, 12, 18, He says, but my gracious lady, if you grant me leave, will you pardon this prisoner and prompt him to uh, rise? Then I'll quit these covers and pull on my clothes, and our words will flow more freely back and forth. Now, notice he's saying, could you kind of give me a a minute? Uh, You you can leave, and then I can put my clothes on, and uh, then, then we can have a polite conversation. Because, you know, people in the Middle Ages didn't have pajamas. They slept on natural. And so here is this beautiful woman in his bed, and he's completely naked. It's very awkward, and he has to be polite. Uh, if you remember when it talked about the, the significance of his five-pointed star, one of the virtues, or the series of virtues it talked about, was uh, his purity and his politeness. And this... This encounter with the lady tests those two. Uh, 
He has to be pure. He has to not sleep with her. Uh, but he also has to be polite. He has to be courteous. And it's very difficult. And it's kind of it's it's a very comic scene when you think about it. Uh, but he's trying to be polite in this very bizarre, awkward social situation. Um, and she is very explicit about what she wants. Look around line twelve thirty. We are left all alone with my husband and his huntsman away in the hills and the servants snoring and my maids asleep and the door to this bedroom barred with a bolt. I have in my house an honored guest, so I'll take my time. I'll be talking to him for a while. You're free to have my all. Do with me what you will. I'll come just as you call and swear to serve you well." Uh, in, in the original Middle English, the, the first uh, uh, line of that wheel at the end of the stanza is, you are welcome to my course, to my body. You see, my body is yours. I mean, this is not a, a subtle invitation. And he has to politely decline her while maintaining his, his purity, uh, which, is, uh, which is a difficult thing for him. Look around line 1270, where the lady says, Were I the wealthiest woman in the world, with priceless pearls in the palm of my hand, to bargain with and buy the best of all men? Then for all the signs you have shown me, sir, of kindness, courtesy, and exquisite looks, a picture of perfection now proved to be true, no person on this planet would be picked before you. And Gawain says, In fairness said uh, Gawain, you found far better. So he's reminding her, oh wait, you, you have found a better man, you know, your husband. Um, he, he's, again, he doesn't say it directly, but he's always being very polite, but he's, he's uh, pushing back her advances. Um, says, then they muse on many things through morning and midday, and the lady stares with loving look, but Gawain is a gentleman and remains on guard. So he, he maintains his purity and his politeness. Uh, but after their conversation, she says around line uh, 1295, But I know that Gawain could never be your name. Says, but why not? asked the knight in need of an answer, afraid that some fault in his manners had failed him. He's, oh, he's horrified. Oh, have I committed some faux pas? Have I, have I done something wrong? And she explains, A good man like uh, like. Ga the, a good man like Gawain, so greatly regarded, the embodiment of court, courtliness to the bones of his being, could never have lingered so long with a lady without craving a kiss, as politeness requires, or coaxing a kiss with his closing words. Very well, said Gawain, let's do as you wish. If a kiss is your request, I shall keep my promise faithfully to fulfill you. So ask no further. So she she kind of backs him into a corner. Look, you're Gawain. You're famous for being a ladies' man and being you know the model of a courteous knight, and you haven't even asked me for a kiss. So he says, "Well, okay." He can't very well politely refuse now and say, "No, I'm not going to kiss you." So he, he says, I, I'm going to kiss you, and that's it. Ask no further. And so she kisses the knight. Um, then we get back to the the hunt, and they've caught the deer, and there's this long section starting around line uh, uh, 1325 where they talk about dressing the deer, of how you, you 
cut it open. You know, if you ever if you ever need to know how to do that, you can have your copy of Sagawan and the Green Knight handy, and it'll tell you. Um, again, one of the things it emphasizes here is the the skill with which they do how clinically they cut. Uh, this is almost an art form in itself. Um, again, it's not just a savagery. They're not just ripping things apart. Um, but they, uh, they do that. They have the the hunt going on. And when they get back around line 1390, remember the game. So the host is going to give Gawain what he got, all of the, the deer meat from the hunt. And now Gawain has to give what he received. So, round line 1390. So he held out his arms and hugged the Lord and kissed him in the kindliest way he could. You're welcome to my winnings, to my one profit, though I'd gladly have given you any greater prize. I'm grateful, said the Lord, and Gawain, this gift would carry more worth if you cared to confess by what wit you won it, and when, and where. That wasn't our pact, he replied, so don't pry. You'll be giving nothing greater. The agreement we have holds good. They laughed aloud and trade wise words which match their mood. All right, so notice this exchange. He's what Gawain got as a kiss, so he has to give it back to the Lord. Now, again, there's a comic element to this, but there's an element that a modern audience might miss is that. Uh, in, in our modern culture, kissing on the mouth is always a romantic thing. I mean, if you kiss somebody full on the mouth, it means you're interested in them. But in uh, the Middle Ages, uh, a full kiss on the mouth was something that a vassal would do to swear loyalty to their lord. So this was a, a, a kiss of loyalty. And it's wonderfully ironic that He's giving the kiss of loyalty, which was essentially this man's wife kissing him, The you know, at least the possibility of infidelity. Uh, it's a very kind of ironically charged moment here. And, uh, of course, he's sticking very strictly to the, the bargain. He's not going to tell whether you didn't say I had to tell you how I got it. You just said I had we had to exchange. So then the next day starts, around line 14, uh, 12. Uh, the second day dawns. They, the hunters are up at the crack of dawn. Um, and this time, uh, around line 1435, the crew of them ringed the hillock in the cliff until they were certain that inside their circle was the beast whose being the bloodhounds had sensed. Then they riled the creature with, rowdy, with their rowdy ruckus, and suddenly... He breaks the barrier of, beat, of beaters. The biggest of wild boars had bolted from his cover. So, second day, they're hunting a boar. Notice the progression. The first day, it was a whole herd of deer, and they had no problem hunting. You know, they shot their arrows, and you know, the deer don't fight back. But the boar, it's just one boar, and he does fight back. So, things are getting more difficult. Um... And in fact, the, the beaters are thrown down. Uh, they aim, they shoot arrows at him, but they can't pierce his hide. Very different from yesterday with the deer. Um, uh, and of course, then we go back, line 1470, to the castle. 
While this was happening, our lovable young lord had not left his bed, and cosseted in costly quilted covers, there he remained. And again, the lady comes in, um, and this time, right as she comes in, around line uh, uh, 1515, so bending from above, the fair one kissed his face. The two then talk of love, its grief, also its grace. So she just, you know, starts the kissing right away. And again, he's, he's trying to find a polite way to do this. And she's protesting, uh, line uh, 1525, says, Twice I have taken this seat at your side, yet you have not spoken the smallest syllable which belongs to love or anything like it. A knight so courteous and considerate in his service really ought to be eager to offer this pupil some lessons in love and to lead by example. Is he actually ignorant, this man of eminence, or does he deem me too dunce-like to hear of dalliance? I come to learn of love and more, a lady all alone, perform for me before my husband heads for home. I've been, you know, this is the second day I've come into your bed and you haven't said anything about how about love. Um, and again, oh, well, uh, he has to find polite ways to not insult her and to obey her. She's the lady of the house, but also not be unfaithful, not be disloyal to the, to the host. Um, this is around line uh, uh, 1530. So the lady tempted and teased him, trying to enmesh him in whatever mischief she had in mind, but fairly and without fault, he defended himself. And again, when she leaves, she kisses him again. Um, so he's gotten two kisses on the second day. Again, things are amplifying. Then again, we hunt, go back to the hunt. Um, the, the Lord himself has to dismount and kill the boar himself. Uh, it's, it's a very brutal, very dangerous fight. And the escalation here is like the escalation in the castle, right? Uh, Gawain's situation is getting more complicated as the, the hunt outside is getting more ferocious. Um, and again, line 1640, uh, the exchange happens this time. He, they have boar to eat that night, and he gives it. Uh, the host gives it to Gawain, and uh, around line sixteen forty, uh, the, the Lord says, "Now Gawain said, the Lord, I give you this game, as our wager warranted, as well you remember. Certainly," said Sir, Ga- uh, Sir Gawain, "it shall be so, and graciously I shall give you my gains in exchange." He catches him by the neck and courteously kisses him. Then a second time kisses him in a similar style. Now we're even, said Gowan, at this evening's end. Uh, The clauses of our contract have been kept, and you have what I owe. Um, So he's, again, and now even the kiss is is, uh, kind of intensified. He doesn't just kiss him, he grabs the back of his neck and pulls him in. So, this is, again, this has become a more aggressive, more powerful kiss this time. Uh, this time the Lord doesn't even bother to ask where it uh, came from. Now, during dinner, notice that uh, Gawain is seated, as he has been before, right next to the lady. And again, he, he's, he's walking a thin line here, around uh, 1657. The young woman... And Gawain sat together all the while. 
and so loving was that lady towards the young lord, with stolen glances and secret smiles, that it muddled his mind and sent him half mad, but to snub a noble woman was not in his nature, and though tongues might wag, he returned her attention all night. Um, so again, this is the situation he's in. It, his mind is muddled, he's half crazy, but he can't be rude to this noble woman. He has to be polite, and so he, he's he's walking a tightrope here, um, of maintaining his both his purity and his politeness. Now, when they turn in for bed on the second evening, around 1680, the host says, I have tested you twice and found you truthful, but think tomorrow, third time throws best. Now, a lord can feel low whenever he likes, so let's chase cheerfulness while we have the chance. So he's saying, okay, this is, we've had two good days, but this third one's going to be the important one. Uh, He's kind of setting up the, the significance of this third day. And the third day starts again with the hunt. This time around 1700, it's they fall on the scent of a fox. Now, this is an interesting development from last time. Um, They started with a herd of deer, then a single very dangerous boar, now a single very hard-to-catch fox. All right, so the the hunt becomes increasingly difficult, it was uh, it was fairly easy the first day hunting the deer became m- more of a, a project uh, with the boar and it's very difficult to hunt down the fox and not only is it more difficult but it's diminishing returns they get a lot of venison on the first day of the hunt they get one single boar on the second day and this third day they get one measly fox so as, as their hunt gets harder, the rewards get smaller. And again, line seventeen thirty. while they're doing all that, our handsome hero snooze contentedly at home, kept from the cold by the morning, uh, of the morning by curtains. And then in comes the lady, in a flowing robe that reached to the floor and was finished inside with fine-trimmed furs. Her head was unhooded, but heavenly gems were entwined in her tresses in clusters of twenty. She wore nothing on her face. Her neck was naked, and her shoulders were bare to both back and breast. So she's... Now, middle in the Middle Ages, women usually wore some kind of headdress. She's not wearing any. She's uh, And she's got this low-cut dress... You know, front and back, bare shoulders. You know, this is is a very provocative outfit she's wearing. And notice it says, line 1750, um, that Gawain is a, a mournful man with his mind on dark matters, how destiny might deal him a death blow on the day when he grapples with the giant in the green chapel, how the state strike of the axe must be suffered without struggle. Um, so Gawain is worried about the, the game he's going to be playing with the Green Knight. He knows that tomorrow he's going to go and have his head chopped off. Um, so that's preoccupying him. Well, the lady comes in again with a friendly kiss. Look around line 1775. He was careful to be courteous and avoid uncouthness, cautious that his conduct might be classified as sinful and counted as betrayal by the keeper of the castle. 
So again and again, he's reminded of this very fine line that he's walking uh, with the lady, and now he's also preoccupied with thoughts of his imminent death. Um, so now the lady kind of escalates things. She says around line 1800, Will you give me some gift? A glove at least? And Gowan says, Well, it were, said Gowan, I wish I had here my most priceless possession as a present for your sweetness, for over and over you deserve and are owed the highest praise I could hope to offer, but I would not wish on you a worthless token. Again, look how, how deftly he handles this. Now, do you want, could you just give me a glove? Says, oh, well, I would give you anything that I had if I had something worthy of you, but I really don't have anything that is worthy of your awesomeness. Um, so he kind of gets out of that. And giving a lady your glove was a significant thing for a knight. That meant that you, you were, she was your, um, your lady love, that you were fighting for her. He's not going to do that. And then she offers him a ring. And he says, line 1820, but, God, by God, no tokens will I take at this time. I have nothing to give, so nothing will I gain. He says, look, I'm not going to give you anything. I'm not gonna, I'm certainly not going to take a ring from you. That obviously is, is loaded with symbolic, material, uh, symbolic freight. And then she says, line 1830, I will give you my girdle, a lesser thing to gain. From around her body, she unbuckled the belt, which tightening, tightened the tunic beneath her top coat. A green silk girdle, trimmed with gold, exquisitely edged and hemmed by hand. Now, you might notice, and if you've read the whole poem and you reread the poem, it's very obvious this sounds like something the Green Knight would wear. It's all green with gold decorations, just like the Green Knight. And she tells him, line 1830, For the body which is bound within this green belt as long as it is buckled robustly about him, will be safe against those who seek to strike him, and all the slyness on earth wouldn't see him slain. Um, and Gawain thinks this girdle being given could be just the job to save him from the strike in his challenge at the chapel. Um, so he agrees, he takes this. Um, and the reason he takes it is that he thinks he can it can save his life. So relenting at last, he let her speak, and promptly she present, pressed him to take the present. And he granted her wish, gave in with good grace, though the woman begged him not to whisper a word of this gift to her husband, and Gawain agreed. Uh, now she's put him in another bind, He's taken something of hers, which he shouldn't have done, and he's promised her not to tell the Lord. Well, that's going to be a problem because, in fact, he, he noticed that he goes right after this, around line uh, uh, 1878, uh, privately approached the priest and implored him to allow his confession. So he immediately goes to confession <laughs> because he knows that he, he's kind of bending the rules here. Um and back in the hunt, they're having, uh, they're they're hunting down the the fox and find it. But again, it's not uh, not a lot of, uh, of not a lot to show for their hunt. And again, we have the exchange, uh, line uh, nineteen thirty-five. He clasps him. Gawain takes the host. He clasps him tight and kisses him three times. He got three kisses from the lady. He's giving three back. Again, escalation, with as much emotion as a man could muster. Um, 
By the Almighty, said the master, you must have had luck to profit such a prize if the price was right. Oh, fiddlesticks to the fee, said the other fellow, as long as I have given the goods which I gained. By Mary, said the master, mine's a miserable match. I've hunted for hours and with nothing to my name but this foul stinking fox. Fling its fur to the devil. Um, now, of course, Gawain has broken the rules. One of the things he got was the green girdle, and he didn't give it. He's broken the, the promise. And, of course, the next day they won't be playing the game because Gawain will be going to the Green Chapel. And the host tells him, line 1970, On my honor, he replied, with hand on heart, every promise I made shall be put into practice. Now, that's, again, a line that reads a lot differently if you, when you know the ending of the story or you're rereading it, because, of course, the host is the Green Knight, and he's made several promises, and he says they're all going to be kept tomorrow. So it's all set up now for the final section of the poem, which will talk about the confrontation between Gawain and the Green Knight. All right. Part four starts off. It's New Year's Day, exactly one year after the Green Knight showed up at Camelot. Uh, the wild winter weather is there. And it mentions specifically, line 2030, he did not, Galwin did not leave off the lady's lace girdle. Uh, the green silk girdle truly suited Sir Gawain and went well with the rich red weaves that he wore. But our man bore the belt not merely for its beauty or the appeal of its appenance, polished though they were, or the gleam of its edges with, which glimmered with gold, but to save his skin when presenting himself without shield or sword to the axe. Right? So he's uh, th there's a reason. It's not just that it's pretty, though it is, but it could save his life. And the guide who takes Gawain and shows him where the green chapel is, um, he gives him a warning around line 2300. says, that place you're headed for holds a hidden peril. In that wilderness lives a wild man, the worst in the world. Now, he calls him a man without measure who shows no mercy. says, to find him is fatal. And so he offers Gawain an out. He says, line uh, 2120, uh, so banish that boogeyman to the back of your mind, and for God's sake, travel an alternate track. Ride another road and be rescued by Christ. I'll head off, I'll head off home, and with hand on heart, I shall swear by God and all his good saints, and on all earthly holiness and other such oaths, that you, your secret is safe, and not a soul will know that you fled in fear from that fellow I described. So he says, look, I'm the only one, I will swear that you actually went, you know, you, you, you know, your secret safe with me. Gawain's having none of it, line 2130. If I failed to find him and lost my medal in the manner you mentioned, I'd be christened a coward, and I could not be excused. So Gawain, you know, he, he could, he could have left there. He said, oh, well, you know, I looked for the green chapel and never found it. Uh, he says, no, that's the coward's way out. I'm not going to do that. And when they find the Green Chapel around line 2170, you, you think it's going to be a, like a church. It's not. It's, it's a mound, uh, line 2170, a mound, a sort of bald knoll on the bank of a brook where fell, where fell water surged and frenzied forth, bursting with bubbles as if it had boiled. So, and he, Gawain says, Green Church, 
Chadwick's the Night, more like the Devil's Lair. Now this is a, 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 this one of these. It was kind of like the the barrow that the, the the dragon had in in Beowulf. It's this mound of earth that's dug out underneath. Uh, is very ancient. Um, this kind of old world that he's entering, and of course he hears this line twenty two hundred a blood chilling noise of the green knight sharpening his axe. Green Knight comes out around line 20, uh, 22, 20, with a Danish-style axe for doling out death. So here he's got his axe. He's all ready to go. And um, uh, it tells him line, uh, oh, where is it? Line 22, 47. Pull your helmet from your head and take what you're owed. Show no more struggle than I showed myself. And says, so, "All right, well, I'll, I'll do that." So, as Gawain points out, look at the, uh, the the wheel at the end of that stanza. He bowed to take the blade and bared his neck uh, and nape, but loath to look afraid, he feigned a fearless state. So, Gawain is afraid, but he's not going to let on. He's putting up a strong front, and the the Green Knight brings back the axe. He's about to do it, and Gawain flinches. Sensing its sharpness, Gawain shrank at the shoulders. And the uh, Green Knight says, oh, come on, you know, I, did I budge or even blink when you aimed the axe? And uh, Gawain says, line 2280, I flinched at first, but will not fail, though once my head's unhitched, it's off once on, once and for all. He's saying, oh, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I did flinch, I'm not, I won't next time. But, you know, when your head got cut off, you knew it, you could just put it back on. I, I can't do that. You know, it's a different circumstance. So we get a second swing, twenty-two ninety. Then he launches the swing, but leaves him unscathed, without uh, withholds his arm before harm could be done. Then the third swing, twenty-three ten. Hoisted and aimed the axe, hurtled downwards, the blade bearing down on the knight's bare neck, a ferocious blow. But far from being fatal, it skewed to one side, just skimming the skin, and finally snicking the fat of the flesh, so that bright red blood shot from the body to earth. So the third one, he, ju- he comes down, but it just nicks him just a little bit. And Gawain, okay, the, the, the bargain has been fulfilled, and Gawain jumps up. He gets his, his uh, weapons and his shield ready and says, Enough swiping, sir. You've swung your last swing. I've borne one blow without backing out. Go for me again, and you'll get some, uh, uh, and you'll get some by return um, with interest. So now Gawain's all ready to fight him. And the, the, the Green Knight's you know, he's kind of leaning on his axe. Um, he says, oh, You know, chill out. You know, one strike was promised, consider it served. And this is when the reveal happens, line 2350. Um, then I missed you once more, and this for the morning when you kissed my pretty wife, then kindly kissed me, his pretty wife. So the green knight is the host. They're the same person. So twice you were truthful, therefore twice I left no scar. So the three strikes of the axe are related to the three days of testing that Gawain was going under in the castle. It says, the third time, though, you strayed and felt my blade, therefore, because the belt you are bound with belongs to me, 
It was woven by my wife, so I know it very well. And I know of your uh, courtesies and conduct and kisses and the wooing of my wife, for it was all my work. I sent her to test you. Um, so, he's, so now this, you know, the, the big plot twist. Um, and notice what the Green Knight's explanation for Gawain's behavior is. It was loyalty that you lacked, not because you're wicked or a womanizer or worse, but you loved your own life. So I blame you less. He's saying, yes, you failed. I mean, you're human, but it's not that you're evil. You could have slept with my wife and you didn't. You know, you could have done a lot worse things and you didn't, but you didn't want to die. That was your your, your 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 big weakness, and that's that's a very human failing. I don't I don't hold that against you. So you get you know, you get you know you don't get an A plus, you just you know you get an A minus maybe, uh, but that's okay. I mean you're doing pretty well. Gawain doesn't seem to feel that way. Look around line twenty three eighty. My downfall and undoing. Let the devil take it. Dread of the death blow and cowardly doubts meant I gave in to greed, and in doing so, forgot the fidelity and kindness which every knight knows. As I feared, I am found uh, to be flawed and false. Though treachery and untru- through treachery and untruth, I have totally failed. So, for Gawain, this isn't a, oh, you made one little slip there. Says, I've totally failed. It's awful. It's the worst thing ever. Um... Well, the Green Knight says, no, no, line 2390, by confessing your failings, you were free from fault and have openly paid penance at the point of my axe. I declare you purged, as polished and as pure as the day you were born, without blemish or blame. And this gold and this gold-hemmed girdle I present as a gift. Um, he says, and he says, follow me home. You know, it's New Year's. Let's have some celebration, you know. Um, you, 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 yes, you did wrong, but you've confessed it. I consider it, you know, you're, you're purged. And uh, Gawain refuses. He's not going back for any parties. Um, and then he launches into this weird thing around line 2415. He says, but no wonder if a fool should fall for a female and be wiped of his wits by womanly guile. It's the way of the world. Adam fell for a woman and Solomon for several. And as for Samson... Delilah was his downfall, and afterwards David was bamboozled by Bathsheba and bore the grief. All wicked and ruined by their wrongs, if only we could love our ladies without believing their lies. And uh, And those were fellows from fortunate families, excellent beyond all other existing under heaven. He cried, yet all were charmed and changed by wily womankind. I suffered just the same, so clear me of my crime. Um, now, he goes into this misogynist rant here about women and all the evils that they do. And uh, Notice what he's not doing is taking the blame himself. Right? Uh, he's not giving himself credit for what he did well, and he's not taking the blame for his failing. It was, well, it's no wonder a woman tricked me. Uh, and again, the the Green Knight feels very, uh, uh, or, I'm sorry, Gawain goes on, he says, um, he says, God bless you for this gift of the girdle. He says, um, and uh, he says, I will take it not for the sake of its wonderful workmanship or even its worth, but as a sign of my sin. 
uh, a sad reminder that the frailty of, of, the, of his flesh is man's biggest fault. Well, now he's saying that was his sin. Now he's taking uh, uh, ownership of this. The, the word, interestingly, in the original Middle English is not sin, but surfeit or excess, um, which is a little bit different. He, he loved his own life too much. It's okay to love your life, but he, he put it above his honor, and that was his, his problem. And he asks, well, what, what's your, who are you, by the way? And so he says, um, uh, line 2445, the Green Knight says, Here in my homelands they call me Bertilac de Haute Desert, and in my manor lives the mighty Morgan Le Fay, so adept and adroit in the dark arts, who learned magic from Merlin, the master of mystery, from the earlier times, she was intimately entwined with the, not that knowledgeable man. As you, uh, as all you knights know back home, uh, Morgan the Goddess, he calls her. And she's behind all this. She guided me in this guise to your great hall uh, to put pride on trial and to test with this trick what distinction and trust the round uh, table deserves. She imagined this mischief would muddle your minds, and that grieving Guinevere would go to her grave at the sight of a specter making ghostly speeches with his head in his hands before the high table. So that ancient woman who inhabits my home is also your aunt, Arthur's half-sister, the daughter of the Duchess of Tintagel, the Duchess who, through Uther, was mother to Arthur, your king." So now we get another revelation. That ugly old crone in, in, the, in the house, uh, that's Morgan Le Fay. That's Arthur's half-sister. That's the, the enchantress. And she's the one who did all this. And you know, she did it to test the round table and it seems particularly aimed at Guinevere. Now, what's interesting about this is you have to ask yourself, so Morgan Le Fay is the bad guy here. Well, maybe... But if you know the story of the round table, uh, Guinevere's going to be big trouble in the future. She's going to have an affair with Lancelot and bring down the whole round table, King Arthur's whole realm. So maybe, you know, trying to uh, punish Guinevere is, shows that Morgan supports the round table. The point is, this isn't. Uh, clearly an evil sorceress doing this she's as it says you know uh, seeing whether the what, what distinction and trust the round table deserves says, are you really worthy how good are you you don't know until you've been tested um, and again the green knight says come come and celebrate you know see your aunt you know now that you know who she is Gawain will not go um, he goes back home and he takes the girdle, and look at what he does with it, line uh, 2485. He had bound the belt like a baldric, slantwise, as a sash, from shoulder to side, laced in a knot looped below his left arm, a sign that his honor was stained by sin. Um, so again, he's taking it as a badge, as a, a an advertisement of his sinfulness, his weakness. And he blushes when he tells all of this to the round table. Um, the end of that stanza uh, it says, "Blood flowed towards his face, and 
showed his smarting shame. Um, this line 2510, I was tainted by untruth, and this, its token, I will drape across my chest till the day I die. Now again, the Knights of the Round Table have a very, like, like the Green Knight, have a very different reaction to this. Say, oh, that's great. You know, you won. You weren't killed. That You know, you you did well. That's This is, and, you know, Gawain is, no, I, I should have done better. Um, it says, every knight in the, in the Brotherhood, this is the knights in the round table talking to him, should bear such a belt, a bright green belt, worn obliquely to the body, crosswise like a sash, for the sake of this man. So it's like, you know, Colin's starting a trend. All the knights are going to wear a green sash like that to remind them of how awesome Gawain is, though to him it's just a reminder of his failure. Uh, so they're not taking it quite the way that he did. And again, they, they laugh at him. There's a lot of laughter in this poem. And it ends a kind of on a note of, of the court laughing at Gawain for taking himself maybe a little bit too seriously. Um, and again, if the, the point is that even a knight as flawless as Gawain can show human weakness, he does again here in a, in a much more subtle and less less important way in, in kind of being so churlish about his failure here. He, he doesn't really take it in, in good humor. Uh, again, he's, he's, he's human. Uh, and, and part of what, uh, you know, so Gawain and the Green Knight is about is about being human, how humans aren't perfect. Um, things don't uh, always go the way they want them to. Uh, we're not always pure and polite. Uh, we just strive to be. Think how different that is from the kind of heroism that you get in Beowulf. Um, Beowulf has a, a, you know, a tragic ending, uh, but it's about a kind of a, a stoic heroism, whereas with Sir Gawain, it's a, it's a much more comic, happy ending, um, but the the hero is not all that excited about it. It's again, Beowulf is a much more mythic, much more remote uh, figure. Gawain is very, very human. There's a there's not a lot of humor in Beowulf, but there's a lot of humor in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. It, it is it is fundamentally a comedy, um, and the, that difference in tone uh, have gives us very different kinds of heroes at the center. Uh, the very human, very fallible, and sometimes very funny Gawain is very different from the very majestic, very stoic, very uh, imposing figure of Beowulf. All right, now, for next time, we're going to start uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And we're going to be looking at the first half, roughly, of the general prologue to the Canterbury Tales. Now, the Canterbury Tales is set up as a series of stories, uh, and the, the general prologue introduces us to all of the characters and tells us that they're going, at the end of it, it'll tell us that they're going to have a storytelling contest. We'll talk more about that later. Um, now, we're reading uh, the Canterbury Tales in the original Middle English. So this is the first thing we're reading that's not in translation. And when you first try to read Middle English, you're going to freak out, okay? But calm down. Don't, you know, it's it's going to be okay. It's not as hard as it looks. Uh, I've given you some help 
with with this. First of all, you'll see on the handouts page, I have uh, uh, something that I've, I've copied from a, a, a kind of student's guide to Chaucer called How to Read Five Lines of Chaucer. And it goes through and gives you some strategies for how to deal with the Middle English. When you're reading Chaucer's Middle English, you need to read it slowly. Uh, take have, Set aside time. This is not going to be something you can skim through. Uh, you need to read it out loud. Just sounding out the words is going to help you a lot. Um, you can ju- usually get the gist of it. Uh, remember that words... The, the, one of the pieces of advice that the reading five lines of Chaucer gives you is very good. If you have trouble understanding what a word is, keep the consonant, uh, drop the final E if there is one, and fiddle with the vowels. You'll be amazed how often that will make the word kind of snap into a, a modern English word for you. Um, also, use the apparatus in the Norton Anthology. Uh, th- this is one of the main reasons we have the Norton Anthology. It's the footnotes and the side notes. Uh, it will gloss the words for you. It'll give you footnotes to help you explain it. And I've also given you, to help you kind of guide you through the beginning of the Canterbury Tales, a series of study questions on the general prologue. Because uh, there's not a story that you're going to be following. It, it's just a series of individual portraits of the of these characters. And that can be helpful. Just read a few of those at a time. Don't try to read it all at once. You won't lose the thread of the story. So this is a good way to kind of dip your toe into Middle English. And the what what you'll be reading, this, this uh, descriptions of the characters who are going on this uh, pilgrimage to Canterbury, is a version of a genre from the time called estates satire. Now, the the three estates in the Middle Ages were the three classes of people. There were the uh, the nobility, the clergy, and everybody else. So those who fight, those who pray, and those who work. The fighters were the knights and the nobles. The prayers were the, the clergymen, and the workers was everybody else. And notice how it's arranged that we get first, that we start with the, the knight, then we uh, we talk about him and his uh, retinue, and then we get the uh, some of the clergy, and then we get the, uh, the other people. So it's kind of arranged in the in the correct way. And most estates satire at this time was had a very ironic or, or, or sarcastic, cynical tone to it. It was all about how awful the these people are and these clergymen and the, the businessmen are cheating us and all that. Now, Chaucer gets some of those digs in at, at uh, problems in society, but he does it in a very different way. The, the narrator of the Canterbury Tales is a character called Chaucer, but he's very different from the author Chaucer. Uh, the, the narrator Chaucer is a very kind of wide-eyed, enthusiastic, naive person. And he seems to take everybody at face value and is very enthusiastic about them. But notice there are times when he's enthusiastic about things that we as readers see maybe he shouldn't be so excited about. Maybe these are bad things, not good things. And just that simple narrative technique, it's something that, um, oh, for instance, Mark Twain does in uh, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. He has a, a, a naive narrator who allows 
Twain to make very biting social commentary in a very lighthearted comic way. And you'll see that happening quite a bit. Notice in these portraits of the individual pilgrims what gets emphasized. Uh, does he talk about their appearance? Does he talk about their actions? Does he, he talk about uh, uh, their 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 morals. Uh, what does he focus on? And you'll notice it's different in different uh, different pilgrims. Um, and what's our attitude about these people compared to the attitude that the narrator has? Again, there's often a, a gap there that's kind of ironic and interesting. So, uh, again, take it slowly, uh, read it out loud, um, use the study questions. And we'll be looking at the first half of the general prologue to the Canterbury Tales next time. That's uh, it for today. Thanks again for your attention. Remember that uh, if you have questions about uh, Sir Gawain or the Canterbury Tales or anything else for the class, you can email me at drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thanks again for your attention, and I will talk to you next time.